Uh, welcome. Uh, this is the <coughs> the next episode in the history of anatomy. <coughs> this is entitled Picturing Mr. Gray's Dissection Method, the Invention of an Iconography. I, I start usually with a couple of quotes. One comes from Gray's illustrator, Dr. Henry Van Dyke Carter, 1831 to 1897. This comes from a letter he wrote uh, on the 25th of November, 1855. Um, Gray made proposal to assist by drawings in bringing out a manual for students. A good idea, but did not come to any plan. Too exacting, for would not be a simple artist. And that can be found amongst the Welcome Carter papers at the Welcome Institute in London. There's another uh, sort of typical anatomical quote also from the era by Sir Charles Bell, 1774 to 1842. This comes from his lectures on the nervous system, which was delivered at the College of Surgeons. It was reprinted in the London Medical Gazette of 1828. When you dissect a second body, and perhaps a third, and when your curiosity leads you to inquire whether a certain part is supplied by one, two, or three nerves, there's no such thing as a nerve deviating or being wanting unless through the hurry or awkwardness of dissection, you're constrained to believe that the confusion is in our heads and that there must reign a symmetry and a systematic arrangement by the distribution of the nerves. These guys were serious dissectors. They spent most of their day doing that and discovering things. In London, by the mid-1840s, through an inequitable distribution of bodies and body parts which favoured the developing teaching institutions, Somerville, the head of the inspectorate, had ensured that the private schools of anatomy dotted around the city would effectively be killed off. Now, there were a number of them at this time. These included the Hunters' Great Windmill Street, was then run by Sir Caesar Hawkins and Herbert Mayo, uh, there was the Little Windmill Street School, the Webb Street School, which was run by Mr Granger, Dean Street, Little Dean Street, Chapel Street, Howland Street, Blenheim Street. There was the Great Marlborough Street School, which was run by Joshua Brooks, who had his own museum, and the Alders Great Street School, which was run by Mr Terrell. And there were several smaller classes of anatomy run in London by Messrs Bennett, Carpew, Dermot and Slayhoe. Dublin, for example, at the same time ran along similar lines with private classes in Peter Street, Moore Street, Titchman Street and Park Street. So there was a lot of rivalry in the private anatomy school um, landscape. Somerville's inspectorate was determined to curate the business of body movement with him banning members of the public from attending mortuaries or frequenting the dissecting rooms. As the national availability of bodies settled down in the first decades after the Anatomy Act was enacted, it was into this environment that Henry Gray entered the dissecting rooms at Kinnerton Street. The medical school which Gray worked uh, uh, in was formed in 1831, but it was opened in Kinnerton Street in 1834, and had an official opening of the St George's School in July 1835, which started with the public dissection of an Egyptian mummy. So this was a, these things were a big deal. 
um, with a hand-picked, medically trained illustrator, as I mentioned, Henry Van Dyke Carter, together the two men transformed not only the way anatomy was taught, but also how it was represented. The details of Gray's enigmatic life are contested and speculative, largely because of a paucity of personal data and because he died so young. But there can be little doubt that his legacy on cadaveric anatomical teaching compares with, and I think it can be argued possibly supersedes, that of Vesalius. Both men rewrote anatomy's taxonomy, and both imprinted their own conceptual idea on its illustrative style, but in different ways. Through their collaborative 1858 book, Gray's Anatomy, Descriptive and Surgical, which most people call Gray's these days, Gray and Carter cemented the value of accurate images into a Victorian prescription for the conduct of dissection of the cadaver and how it imposed a practical impact on the daily life of every surgeon. Even more than the text, for every medical student, Carter's iconic imagery became the recognisable emblem of anatomy since the first edition of their great book. In medical schools around the world, its literal constancy encouraged an almost clerical certainty of Gray's universal language. And since his publication, despite some of Gray's method of illustrating and teaching anatomy becoming indelibly etched as the standard, his astute marketing rendered Carter a virtually forgotten man. Remarkably, little is known of the early life of Gray. He seemed a highly competitive but private person who entered the dissecting world of St George's Hospital by distinguishing himself with his dissertation on the structure and the use of the spleen for which he was awarded the Astley Cooper Prize in 1853. Along the way, at the youthful age of 25, he was elected a fellow of the prestigious Royal Society, even though he'd produced only small and rather esoteric treatises on the development of the retina and optic nerve and another one on the membranous labyrinth and the auditory uh, nerve. It was customary, by the way, to publish any work that won the Astley Cooper Surgical Prize, given the public standing of its benefactor, uh, who'd bequeathed about 300 guineas to graduate students competing from Guy's Hospital. And Gray published the work with John W. Parker and Sons in London, but unsurprisingly, the work on the spleen sold pretty poorly. The illustrations were executed by Carter, but they were unacknowledged by Gray, and that's important. They had a fractious relationship. And when the publishing firm of Parker and Sons was bought out by Longman's Publishing, the company had only sold 203 of the 1,000 copies originally printed. George Henry Lewes, who was the consort of the author George Eliot, bought 15 copies at a reduced price when Parker was closing shop, and the remainder were pulped. So this is the kind of publishing background that you did some research on the spleen and then you published a book on it and then there was a little bit of a public sale and that was it and that's how you also promoted your surgical practice. Both of the articles that got Gray into the Royal Society, the one on the membranous labyrinth and the auditory nerve, the one on the retina and the optical nerve, a little bit obscure but they were published too in 1850 in the Royal Society's journal, Philosophical Transactions, 
His essay on the anatomy and physiology of the nerves of the eye had, however, received the triennial collegiate prize from the Royal College of Surgeons the year before. Gray was then proposed, really with very little track record, to the Fellowship of the Royal Society by Chas Brooke, uh, based upon his, that is, Gray's general knowledge, as well as upon the personal recommendations of Sir William Bowman, Marshall Hall, Richard Partridge, Robert Lee, H. Bence Jones, Henry W. Ackland, C. Handfield Jones, Joseph Toynbee and Francis Sibson. And for those who've got a bit of a, a, a knowledge of the history of anatomy, Sibson, obviously, Sibson's fascia, Sir William Bowman of Bowman's Capsule, um, uh, Robert Lee, H. Bence Jones who uh, of Bence Jones' proteins. So these were people who were a little iconic running around at that time in the, in the public hospitals. Um, somewhere in November of 1855, though, Gray had the epiphany to produce his anatomy book, and he approached Carter, who was working as an anatomy demonstrator and who'd already proven his unique skill as a fine draftsman. And it would take the two men remarkably little time, actually just a further 18 months, to collate the finest general anatomy book available into 750 pages with 363 rather exquisite corresponding drawings. Afterwards, Gray wisely recruited another St George's surgeon, Timothy Holmes, 1825 to 1907, for the task of editorship. And in this latter assignment, Gray seemed almost distracted, if not disinterested. But with good fortune, Holmes proved an extraordinary and diligent proofreader. With Carter, the pitched battle between substance and style was obviated by a uniform mechanistic precision. There was from then on no possibility of ever populating the images with sort of adoring putty or cherubs which could compliantly alluded to the dark art of body acquisition. Gone were these sort of Baroque influences in the illustration, the vivid symbolism of an earlier time that had acted as a memento mori and which had bound to the metaphorical vanitous palette were banished forever. Under Gray and Carter, anatomy developed a far more serious motif as a sombre scientific topic for study and, more importantly, for recapitulation. Carter didn't overpower the viewer with a stifling morality, but rather just converted his images into dispassionate scientific documents which could be read alone without really need of either historical or artistic contextualisation. His schematic reproducibility lifted them out of their era and made them essentially timeless. The transformation of Gray's original book has, however, been logistical in part due to the sheer force of personality of its editors. Under Gray, it was an instant personal and commercial success with rave reviews from most quarters, and in particular from both Walkley's Lancet and the British Medical Journal, but not from everywhere. But although it was a unique text, corralling anatomy into its systems of angiology, neurology, splanchnology and the like, some other reviews were particularly acerbic. The book did clearly borrow from the contemporary texts around, provoking in some quarters rather vicious criticism concerning Gray's general lack of regard for or acknowledgement of 
the serious pioneering anatomists who'd preceded him and who would have potentially inspired his work. One anonymous writer um, uh, for the Medical Times and Gazette of 1859 was particularly coruscating, admonishing Gray for, quote, a book that was not wanted, low, unscientific in tone, and it's been compiled for the most part in a manner inconsistent with the professions of honesty. That comes from the 5th of March, 1859. The reviewer, who remained anonymous, took particular issue with Gray's borrowed descriptions of the development of the bones, the peculiarity of diseases of the arteries, and the differences reported by Gray between the brain weights of women and those of men. At one point in accusation, the reviewer writes that uh, the, quote, correspondence between editions of Quain and Gray would be laughably conspicuous if it were not so grossly offensive. So he was accusing Gray of plagiarism. The editorial board went on in such a lacerating... Uh, the editorial, pardon me, went on in such a lacerating fashion that it's worth repeating here uh, in its entirety. Quote, it's a serious thing to review a book like this of Mr Gray's. One sits down to the table with the oppressive feeling of sadness which comes over a man when he has, been, uh, when he has seen a wrong done, when he finds the occasion of such wrong has been unnecessarily fought for and that the ill deed is, after all, ill done. We feel confident every right-minded reader will join with us in repudiating this book of Mr Gray's and in lamenting that those for whom it was mainly intended, the young men of the profession, whom we would fain see looking up to and emulating their teachers as men of honour as, well as well as of science, should be exposed to the contagion of such an example of debased complication an unscrupulous assumption. That's an extraordinary uh, uh, rebuke. Gray had certainly borrowed extra images and text from the main books available at the time, including Jones Quain's Elements of Anatomy, which was published in 1828, from Paolo Mascagni's Anatomicae Universae Iconae from 1823, and the small pocket anatomy book that went around from Robert Knox, The Manual of Human Anatomy, Descriptive, Practical and General, which was published in 1853. And that was designed, that last one, to be carried around for patient consultation. It was a little pocket book. But Gray, in his book, had provided images that were of sufficient size that individual structures could be appreciated. And in a rather revolutionary way, he avoided proxy labelling, where sort of arrows and lines and legends would be offset on the page and which distracted readers who would constantly be forced to move back and forth between the words and the image. Carter's simple but precise solution to that problem was to keep the labelling of a structure on the structure itself, aligning the name and the orientation. Now muscles, arteries and nerves were labelled vertically, horizontally and obliquely where they lay, and without any diverting lines that could erode the experience of identifying a structure, conceptualising its relations to other structures and committing this organisation to memory. It is as if with this simple gesture that Gray understood how the brain receives new data, but more than this, how the information could best be assimilated, integrated 
and for anatomists, regurgitate it. We've got the same problem today when we're teaching anatomy over Zoom. We're trying to convert a three-dimensional structure into a two-dimensional concept and trying to explain relationships in that way. Of course, every piece of art does that to some extent. Um, and uh, so there is nothing new in this. It's our cleverness in getting the message across. The Grey-Carter technique, producing the clearest labels on the smallest structures, was a method that most would then borrow from then on. But the response to Grey was not for his innovation. The most vitriolic reviews had singled out his apparently well-known habit of not acknowledging his sources, giving the audacious impression in his small compendium of work of a kind of faux originality. By all accounts, these public criticisms, while other journals at the same time had promoted his new textbook, were actually deeply wounding, um, even if to Gray it was self-evident, if not self-affirming, that there was what he regarded as a desperate need for his book. Given the contemporary competition, Gray may have had a point. Most likely against his naturally impetuous reactions, he privately accepted counsel and he remained silent. He didn't respond to these rebukes and bad uh, reviews. And he remained silent on the matter, really resisting that temptation to respond in print. William Cheselden's 1773 Osteographia, The Anatomy of Bones, had particularly nice fold-outs, but the bones were only uh, were the only subject uh, that was uh, covered. Another competing text at the time was Luther Holden's Osteology from 1855, which for the first time actually illustrated the origins and the insertions of the muscles on the surface of the bones. The student favourite at the time was Knox's Pocket Manual, which I've mentioned, but it was printed in such tiny script with the whole book only six and a half inches high that the drawings needed a magnifying lens to be properly read. William James, Erasmus Wilson's The Anatomist's Vade Mecum of 1854 and his ancillary book The Dissector's Manual, the latter is two expensive volumes, both suffered too from tiny drawings that relayed arrows and numbers to various parts in complicated legends. They constantly forced the reader's attention away from the text or the miniature image towards a series of directories, registries and tables, and the product was hardly conducive to reinforcing the memory. And their defence, however, both Knox and the Vade Mecum were inexpensive and they fitted well into the pocket for repeated consultations by the bedside. It's like a bedside Bible, really. Even stronger competition was the two-volume set of Jones Quain, his Elements of Descriptive and Practical Anatomy for the Use of Students of 1828, was pretty expensive, uh, uh, however, at 20 guineas, although most considered it well worth the price. It was against Quain in particular that the anonymous editorial, as I've said in the Medical Gazette and Times, printed side-by-side swathes of the written osteology for comparison with Gray's. And in so doing, the reviewer did not hold back regarding Gray's book as, quote, a more unphilosophical amalgam of anatomic details and crude surgery we never met with. Actually, if you look at it, although the wording is similar, computer programs looking at Gray's and looking at Quain's failed to suggest that it reaches in its exposition of a known set of anatomical facts that actual heinous charge 
of plagiarism. Um, I would say, going back to old William Cheselden's book of Osteographia, Cheselden was from another era, uh, the first president of the Company of Surgeons. He was born in 1688 and died in 1752, and he was the personal physician to Sir Isaac Newton, different era, also the personal physician to Alexander Pope. Like his earlier work, The Anatomy of the Human Body, which was published in 1713, Cheselden had decided to write in English rather than in Latin, and the decision improved the popularity of both titles. He was also one of the first to use a camera obscura to project his images for clarity and enlargement, and he proudly displayed one of those devices on the frontispiece of the Osteographia, if you look at it, presumably to show his rather modern perspective on anatomy and its illustration. As of Luther Holden's Osteology, which was around a little bit after Gray appeared in 1855, one of the common textbooks used. In the British Medical Journal's obituary of Luther Holden, who was born in 1815 and died in 1905, he was considered so pedestrian that the obituarist's only lament was, uh, quote, that he never went to a boarding school. That was a main part of the obituaries, worth having a look at. That comes from the BMJ in uh, February the 11th, 1905. Um, but his books, the 1851 Manual of Dissection of the Human Body, the 1866 Medical and Surgical Landmarks, they were expected to be studied and memorised by most jobbing students who were actively engaged um, in dissection. Despite Gray's ego taking something of a mauling, he had initial supporters even amongst his rivals. George Hallford, uh, George Britton Hallford, 1824 to 1910, who was lecturing anatomy at Grosvenor Place, which abutted directly against St George's Hospital, uh, and who'd moved to my university uh, in Australia to head our new medical school in 1862, had in the Lancet heaped particular praise on the book. Actually, Hallford uh, was our first professor of anatomy at the University of Melbourne, and he was recommended for the post of professor of anatomy at the new medical school by Sir Richard Owen and also Sir James Paget. And just for interest, that when Hallford arrived, uh, uh, he was a, a, a rival of Gray, but yet had praised the book. When Hallford arrived to Melbourne, the school was still being built, didn't open until 1864 and it forced him to deliver his first lectures at his home. And it was a long way to go, really, from central London for his new post uh, since the initial class, which he conducted in his coach house, was attended by only three students. So that's a pretty long way to go from the centre of London to Melbourne to a new medical school. But by the next year, he had about 100 anatomy students, and that's where I work currently um, at the moment. Um, so it's been going for quite a while. Regardless of the critiques, however, sales became so brisk that Gray began almost immediately a work on the second edition. And no doubt for this new edition, somewhat chastened and contrite, he now acknowledged an indebtedness to Quain and also to Holden and thanked a number of other well-known influential overseas anatomists whom he had neglected to do so in the first edition. Those acknowledgements included uh, thanks to Jules Cloquet, these will mean something to people who studied anatomy, Jean Cruvelier, Jacob Henley, 
Sir Richard Owen and Sir William Bowman. Gray's acknowledgement of Holden took notice of the fact, for example, that Holden's manual pioneered the use of intrinsic labelling, that's labelling a structure on the structure itself, as Carter had done, and which made Carter somewhat famous. Holden had initially used the technique in blackboard presentations. So all these new innovations had all been described by, in a sense, by other people, but never been used. But that's really the, the changes that were made that made anatomic illustration what it is and made these books so famous. Following his involvement with the first edition, Carter's life, however, moved on. After passing his examinations for the Indian Medical School, he'd moved to Bombay, and although receiving there a copy of the book, he was never offered any royalties for all of these illustrations. There was already, though, some bad blood between Carter and Gray ever since Gray hadn't paid for the images of the book on the spleen, as you'll recall. Carter, too, would have known of Gray's rather petty handwritten revisions of the title page at the 11th hour before publication when this new book, Anatomy, Descriptive and Surgical, was at the proof stage. Just three months before going to press, Gray had insisted, for example, on reducing the print size of Carter's name on the title page, scrubbing out Carter's newly acquired title of Professor of Anatomy in Bombay. He couldn't tolerate that Carter because that would have left the illustrator seemingly more qualified than Gray himself. And he referred to Carter as if he were already dead. He called him the late demonstrator of anatomy at St George's Hospital. Not that he'd just left St George's to go to Bombay. he made it sound in the front title page as if Carter was dead. So this sort of the pettiness uh, of Gray in this, uh, in this uh, particular page. Many have drawn conclusions from this one page, which has been preserved in the College of Surgeons, concerning Gray's personality and his working style. But it's only a presumption to connect the forceful imprint left by the mark of his correcting pen to the impression of Gray's self-importance and hubris, or to his determination to erase Carter's contribution to history. We're making assumptions here, but I think they're probably legitimate assumptions. As it was, the book was of such moment that it ran into a reprint with some 2,000 copies selling out rapidly. It moved swiftly across the Atlantic the following year, but with the unexpected death of the driving publisher, John Parker Jr., uh, who was only 40, the printers sold out to Longmans, who in 1863 took on the publishing of future editions. Gray's annotation for the second edition added 32 illustrations, most of which were produced in a different style to that of Carter. The illustrations were included by John Guy's Westmacott after Carter transferred to India. Carter began work for the East India Company and he enjoyed an illustrious and happy career writing about rare infectious conditions that he treated in the Indian subcontinent, mostly leprosy, a thing called Madura foot, and chronic fungal infections which were called mycetomas. Carter married the divorcee, Harriet Bushell, and although they subsequently divorced, they remained in close contact for the next 20 years. And then returning to England, Carter settled in Scarborough, uh, marrying Mary Ellen Robeson in 1890 and dying of consumption, aged 65, in 1897. As for Gray's sudden demise, again, so little is known. 
June saw him in the running for a precious surgical consultant vacancy at his beloved St George's after the sudden resignations of the surgeons Mr Later Sir Caesar, Sir Caesar Hawkins and Mr Edward Cutler, along with assistant surgeons Mrs Prescott Gardner Hewitt and George D Pollock. So among the four um, uh, vacancies, Gray's ambitions no doubt would have been catered for. But whilst in Belgravia, visiting his nephew Charles, who had smallpox, Gray suddenly became ill and died at his home in Wilton Street after a short fever. He was 34 years old. Actually, Gray died on the same day that St George's surgeon uh, job nominations were accepted and the vacancies were formally advertised in the Lancet on the 15th of June. Gray knew that he would be competing with his old friend Timothy Holmes and another older candidate, a Mr Athel Johnson. Holmes was actually appointed to the post and Johnson uh, withdrew after Gray's death. As was customary for a smallpox death, Gray's belongings, including his papers, uh, were burned. His nephew, Charles, survived the illness, and Gray's death was listed as, quote, confluent smallpox vaccinated in childhood certified, unquote. He's buried in Highgate Cemetery, but the tombstone is unlisted. That's the same cemetery as Karl Marx. And it wasn't until, really, the smallpox, smallpox epidemic of 1870 that it was realised that vaccination was not protective in some cases over time, so that uh, repeat boosters needed to be given. It's a similar sort of COVID era that we're living in now, I suppose. Gray's mentor at the hospital, Sir Benjamin Brodie, was pretty distraught. Who is there to take his place, he wrote in a letter to the anatomy inspector Charles Hawkins two days after Gray had died. Um, wrote it on the 15th of June, 1861. With Gray and Parker Jr. now dead, it's arguable that without the astute appointment by Parker Sr. of Timothy Holmes as editor, the book might have died a quiet uh, and unremarkable death. Instead, it rose to become extraordinarily popular in England, the perspicacity of Holmes translating that popularity across the Atlantic to many, it might have seemed that the invitation to Holmes, a natural rival to Gray for the position of St George's senior surgeon, might have seemed a bit of a risk. Much older than Gray and somewhat in his shadow, Holmes magnanimously took on the task with enthusiasm, even though he was trying to complete his own book, The System of Surgery. Uh, Holmes became actually St George's hospital treasurer. His abiding medical interest was in paediatric surgery, writing the influential Treatise on the Surgical Treatment of the Diseases of Infancy and Childhood in 1868. And Holmes was appointed to the consultant surgical staff of the Great Ormond Street Hospital for sick children between 1861 and 1868. And uh, he was also the chief surgeon to the Metropolitan Police. Now, even though it was customary for all fellows of the Royal Society to be eulogised, there'd never been a public obituary for Gray. Only after the surgeon George Gray Turner, 1877 to 1951, had suggested that some recognition be made for the 50th anniversary publication in the 20th edition was there a brief historical note. 
but it's unclear why the previous editors would have chosen for so long to ignore the author, Gray, upon whose coattails they were riding, uh, is uh, not least a little tragic. Those at the British Medical Journal could only see fit to bring out a belated obituary on September the 6th, 1958, in deference to the first hundred years of publication. The small notation on Gray's life in the 1918 edition was published with the only other surviving photograph of Gray. It shows him in the Kinnerton Street dissecting rooms on the 27th of March, 1860. The photograph was commissioned by Joseph Langhorn, and if you look at that picture that's available, he's a bald man sitting at the extreme right on the same bench as the immaculately dressed Gray. Langhorn took on the study of medicine at the age of 60 and then practised in Brompton uh, as a general practitioner. So all of these pictures have got something interesting to say about them. The original picture that we uh, looked at of um, Gray, one of the only other second photograph, was an image which we think has been taken by a medical school friend in the early 1830s or 1840s. And for us as students, this image kind of projected Gray's appearance onto a set of imagined ideals concerning his disposition towards the study of anatomy that we were expected to adopt and emulate. Our hero appears as a well-dressed dandy behind whose quixotic smile lay an intensely serious and fastidious man, these sort of raccoon-eyed scimitars of sleeplessness, a badge of honour for the many late nights spent in the dissecting room. And when I did my fellowship, I did so in Tasmania, a small state in the southern part of Australia. I was the only person in that state doing the uh, final exams. And so I would go down uh, usually after midnight two or three times a week um, to look at dissected material in big pots of formalin. So you'd study your anatomy between midnight and two or three or four in the morning. I could never get anybody to go uh, with me. But I did that two or three days a week for about four or five months before the exams. We took that kind of stuff pretty seriously. It's kind of, I think, a different era now with CGI and all of that. Nobody really needs to do these kinds of things. Following Gray's death, there was a practical dispersal of bodies in the United Kingdom, but the supply side only met the, gray, the growing demand by around about 1900. The subject of the ratio of bodies to students in the UK uh, has been shown graphically very well by Ruth Richardson. And from Gray's birth in 1826, right up until 1970, and she's used data provided by 12 different London hospitals. That's evident in her book, Death, Dissection and the Destitute, in the appendix there. After the First World War, the number of those studying anatomy and dissecting cadavers increased dramatically, but without an adequate supply line, and it necessitated that the inspector had issued guidelines on the number of dissectors per body. Now, initially, the ratio is two students per body part. That's about 16 students per whole body, assuming that there were two for the limb, four for the sides of the head and neck, four for the thorax, four for the abdomen. Our group had six working on each half of the body. And this ratio was maintained until 1920 
increasing during comparatively lean times and with the addition of dental and veterinary students to the schools. If you look at Richardson's calculus, it has the ratio between students and cadavers dropping from about one to one, which it was in the mid-19th century, that Parisian method that William Hunter introduced, down to one to five through the 1970s. And I started uh, dissecting in 1979, so we were one to six. And that estimate's based upon information that's collated before direct accountability and tracking of a corpse which had its inception in London somewhere between about 1843 and 1844 or so. But there were many forces which obviated the impact of the Anatomy Act. Supply naturally fell off as basic British living conditions improved along with an improvement in real wages. The new labour laws had lifted up the impoverished with the small communities protecting themselves against dissection by organising the prudential societies and societies for the protection of the dead as safeguards. Despite the new poor laws which had been designed to ensure full employment and which threatened destitution for those unable or unwilling to work, the large casual class of workers gradually disappeared. And I'm talking about the British system here, but there's some similarities in my country, Australia. Um, Literacy increased, the social welfare system was established, healthcare advanced, and there were fewer unclaimed bodies at the infirmaries, even as funeral costs increased after the 1930s at an exponential rate. The rise of embalming resulted in more open caskets and higher funeral home costs, In a seminal article outlining funeral costs over 122 years and comparing them with a 347% increase in living costs, Davidson recorded an increase in funeral costs over the same time period of something like 10,000%. So there's a book by um, uh, Davidson called The High Cost of Dying, written in 1951. It's also worth reading Jessica Mitford's The American Way of Death, which was published by Simon and Schuster in 1963. All of these social impacts affected the number of unclaimed bodies and everything then moved to donation. There was an improvement in the overall mortality, of course, during the winter months and in the range of epidemics with a great shift by the late 1950s to the culture of body bequest. And it's interesting to note that Thomas Walkley of the Lancet first proposed the idea of voluntary body bequests as far back as 1831. The Anatomy Act didn't recognise bequests, and in the first decade after its enactment, there were only six bequests in the entire United Kingdom, uh, which were not recorded by the inspectorate, actually, until 1919. So it just shows how few. Now, of course, 99% of bodies availed, not 100%, are by uh, bequest. It's interesting that in 1912, over 200 New York physicians pledged their bodies for autopsy rather than for consignment to the dissecting room in an effort to reduce the public stigma attached to post-mortem dissection. There was a, 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 an interesting article on that in the New York Times on the 7th of October, 1912. In the wake of the Great Depression, funeral costs were defrayed and in America picked up by the Veterans Administration, state and federal welfare groups and labour associations. 
The burial monies for those unclaimed were even handed over to some states, but all became regulated by the late 1960s with the passage of a uniform gift acts governing voluntary body donation. In 1965, in the United Kingdom, memorial services honouring those who willingly donated their bodies were initiated, and the United States followed suit in the early 1970s. Such services have gone a long way to re-establishing the trust between the public and the anatomists, and in countries like New Zealand, they've also served to cement connections with the Indigenous community through very rich and moving remembrance ceremonies. Um, The uniform laws concerning anatomic material include, of course, the regulation of organ transplantation and its collaborative research. In 2004, the Human Tissue Act was enacted following the Alderhey scandal in Liverpool, England, where it was discovered that a pathologist, Dick Van Velzen, had misappropriated thousands of organs and tissues from children who died at the hospital. The 2004 Act and its ancillary Human Tissue Authority regulate body donation, tissue use from tumour banks, the transfer of DNA material between laboratories, and also organ transplantation. The other big change that we've got, obviously, are the very moving ceremonies that are held in every, virtually every anatomy department at universities every year, remembrance uh, ceremonies, and really... Um, uh, thanking families for the, the gift of body donation. And they're exceptionally moving. If, if um, anyone listening to those has an opportunity but hasn't been to one of these types of ceremonies, they, they really are um, uh, extremely moving, uh, rewarding, and uh, pretty emotional. The, the uh, next uh, session that we're going to have uh, will be Uh, on anatomical transparency, Röntgen's rays and the new ways of seeing. (laughs) 